We took a trip. <laughs> yes, we did. I guess I should probably be more specific. Yeah, probably. Okay, so I guess it began with the books. There were two. Hillbilly Elegy, which exposed the false stereotypes against Appalachians, and What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia, which exposed the exaggerations of Hillbilly Elegy. We read the books as a summer reading assignment for our journalism class. At the time, the connection to the reading wasn't clear. It just seemed like another English assignment. I mean, we talked about them in class. True, but we did not expect to actually go there. However, about a month into the semester, our teacher announced we were taking a trip to West Virginia. On this trip, we would be investigating life in Appalachia. We were to choose a topic, research it, and carry out that research into an investigation while we were there. For me, it was not so simple. No, it was not. I remember you struggled with which aspect to take, right? Yeah, I did. I knew what I wanted to do, just not how to execute it. Anywhere you go, you revert back to the general stereotypes you have of that place. What we see on TV, what we read in textbooks, what we see on our phones, all feeds into these false stereotypes. In our case, though we were given every reason to believe otherwise, the natural biases remained as we started our trip. And yet, we labeled West Virginians as hillbillies. They're a minority group that is primarily white, often associated with the GOP, and occasionally labeled racist for their still prevalent ties to the Confederacy. What I'm trying to say is, we just can't deny these biases. Through all of this, one question tugged at my brain. What is it like to be a minority in West Virginia? I mean, this is a place that could be seen having vastly different views and culture than other parts of this country. Imagine being a demographic minority in this region. Is it difficult to live as a minority in a place that does not necessarily represent many of the mainstream values of our country as a whole? To pause, you may be wondering what started me on this topic specifically. Why these angles? Why racism? Why now? And the simple answer, of many, is I follow the news. I watch the news and I continually see things that, to me, scream privilege or discrimination, but somehow do not to others. To be specific, I mean, on a national level. You have cases like Centoya Brown, where she was thrown in jail for life for protecting herself. Brown was just a 16-year-old African-American girl in Tennessee, sentenced to life in prison after being drugged and sold as a prostitute. Dazed by the drugs, she believed the 40-year-old man who bought her was going to kill her. She reacted in pure terror and killed him, believing she had acted in self-defense. This may seem like a cut-and-dry murder case, but it's not. In the state of Tennessee, minors involved in prostitution are automatically deemed sex trafficking victims, and their cases are handled accordingly. However, Brown received none of these benefits and was tried as an adult. But then, at the same time, on the campus of Stanford University, people like Brock Turner walk free, despite solid evidence linking them to their crime. Turner, a white male, was a freshman swimmer at Stanford University and was attending a fraternity party, where he became heavily intoxicated. In 2016, Turner went to trial on the charges of sexually assaulting an incapacitated woman on campus. Not only did the woman testify, but there were two eyewitnesses who interrupted the assault. However, Turner was sentenced to only six months in prison, and only served three. Even then, it was up for debate as to whether or not he should have to register as a sex offender, because the court believed it may ruin his future, as a bright young kid with great potential. Except, Centoya Brown was black, and Brock Turner was white, so it makes sense, right? Again, you may be thinking, what does this have to do with minorities in Appalachia? And truthfully, it doesn't. Yet, at the same time, 
It has everything to do with minorities in Appalachia, minorities in Tennessee, and minorities nationwide, specifically in our judicial system. It comes down to the simple fact that our judicial system does not place a value on the future of African Americans. It's all completely in our faces, yet people are just not willing to accept the facts. And the truth is, there is racial discrimination in our society. Here we are. It's 2018, and race is still dividing our society. And despite what many people think, it is present no matter where you are in the country. The racial biases throughout the country range in effect from police shootings to wrongful incarcerations to search and seizure. Each of these stem from the biases we hold, feeding into how we react to the world around us. In West Virginia, I wanted to explore how these biases play a role in an environment different from the one I live in. I'm Mackenzie Lynch, and you're listening to NPR. So you got a black kid that gets killed. And then you got a white kid that gets killed. You don't hear shit about the white kid. Nothing. This was one of the first things I heard out of context when we arrived in Charleston, the capital of West Virginia. To put this in perspective, this was completely unprovoked. There was a man sitting outside of his house on a stoop, waiting to share his opinions with whomever would listen. Draped in a baggy shirt, partnered with a flannel, he gave off an unsettling aura that resembled a landmine waiting to be stepped on. And when my fellow journalists and I walked by, he did just that, spewing words with a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And to be honest, it's what I expected for the rest of the trip. But what I got was the complete opposite. The, there was a news article earlier this year that like um, a dude shot a black student is that correct? I don't remember. The, he accused the student of like trying to steal something. Meet Justin Adams. It seemed as though he was the average Charleston citizen who was well-educated on the topic, despite what he originally told me. I think that goes for a lot of the people in West Virginia. Not to generalize, but I believe they know more about race relations than they think. So before we dive in, I should probably give you some background on myself first. I'm a fairly shy person. In fact, I'm terrified of talking to strangers. Add on top of that the confrontation. You simply cannot just go up to someone and say, hey, you're a minority. Does your life suck here? Tell me about it. It's unacceptable on so many different levels. My initial goal was to capture three different stories about minorities in West Virginia. Minorities in schools, minorities in prisons, and minorities in everyday life. That didn't happen. Despite the 20 emails I sent, no one wanted to meet for an interview. People just don't want to talk about racism. Thus, we arrived in West Virginia and my adventure began. I had no option but to go in blindly. I took to the streets and pulled around for my story. I began looking for an origin story. Where do the prejudices come from? And I found one common answer, the Civil War. Of course, West Virginia was born out of the Civil War. So the blood lineages uh, are on both sides. So uh, vicariously, uh, there's going to be some confrontation just based on uh, the bloodlines that haven't cleared up yet. On June 20th, 1863, West Virginia was granted statehood. So theoretically, it was born out of the Civil War. But Kansas and Nevada were both granted statehood during this time. So what makes West Virginia so different? 
And what does this mean to be born out of the Civil War? The difference is Stonewall Jackson, a Confederate general and a West Virginia-born man. Stonewall Jackson statue right there, and I believe he's like a predominant general for the Civil War for the South, right? And he was born in Virginia. But if you walk by there frequently, you'll often notice that there are flowers left for him. I don't know what that's about, but I find that interesting. I, too, found it interesting that, amidst the recent uproar on the topic of historical statues, these people were still willing to openly worship this Confederate leader. Stonewall was a religious man, and during that time period, a religious man was thought to be the fairest slave owner of all, treating his slaves like humans. However, he was still a slaveholder. Not only that, but he was the general of an army full of unjust slaveholders, fighting to keep slavery. In the end, he was still a leader who openly symbolized racism and gave it longevity. Yet, as I found out, this was just the beginning of the blast from the past. Not only were people still worshiping the Confederate leaders themselves, but Adams relayed the not-so-subtle ways West Virginians paid homage to the Confederate flag itself, either by brandishing flags on the side of their houses or on school buses. I know that there's the heritage thing tied up in that, but like the rebel flag has a distinct like, hey, I'm a racist vibe. More on that, if you drive down US 60 toward the area where I live, it's in Culloden, you'll see like a house that has like the flag out front on a pole and below that flag is a valet statue of a black dude, which I think that's like openly being racist. I don't know, Hurricane Creek Road, there's another house that's got that like flag up and the whole house is painted red. Another openly, I think, racist thing. And I think at Hurricane High School, they have like trucks for a while with the rebel flag on them. And the argument has to do with like I don't know, heritage. But I think in our society, it's just like seen as, as racist. I don't know, or at least that's my um, bias. It was a lot to take in. To start, I found it very interesting that he referred to it strictly as the rebel flag, as opposed to the more widely known name, the Confederate flag. Whether he wanted to distance himself from the Confederacy, or if it was just the normality in the South, Next, I was pretty shocked about how openly racist people were. A few months ago, someone spotted a Confederate flag on the back windshield of a car parked on Monroe Avenue, the street that juniors at Mamaroneck park on. Chatter broke out and people tried to figure out who would proudly flaunt a symbol of racism and oppression. Eventually, someone figured out that it was a resident who lived in the house in front of it. So, I had a hard time grasping the fact that a school had sanctioned the Confederate flags on their school buses. However, in theory, one could write off the Confederate flags as a support for states' rights, an excuse given by many for the secession, the Confederacy, and the Civil War. Regardless of the rebel flag, the residents still showed an acceptance to racist ideals. In particular, showcasing a statue of an African-American servant. There is simply no other way to interpret this other than an act of racism, degrading African-Americans to servants, helpers, slaves. With all of this, I still wondered why why is this discriminatory behavior accepted in 2018? Why does no one bat an eye? While walking in the Charleston Mall, I met a woman named Sarah. Born and raised in West Virginia, Sarah recently moved back to Charleston after her mother was diagnosed with cancer. 
Given the time gap, Sarah was able to provide me with an interesting perspective on how she believes her home has changed over time regarding race and demographics, as well as what she believes caused the racial issues the area faces. A lot of it has to do with value systems and um, passing down value systems from generation to generation. It's still a problem. It's typical for traits to be passed down from generation to generation, for better or for worse. In this case, it was for worse. Eliminating long-standing prejudices is a difficult task, especially when people refuse to acknowledge them. However, many people did not agree with this, not for reasoning that they did not live in a racist environment, but rather there was no one to technically be racist to. Well, I, I don't think there is a lot. You know, our folks have had to, uh, uh, you know, to get along. Uh, with each other because we are a small state. Uh. Meet Ernie. Much like my first interaction, Ernie approached my group of journalists while we were walking around the Charleston Capitol. However, the encounter was quite different from the latter. A very kind old man, Ernie originally inquired that we were locals and began to tell us about the free breakfast being served at the Capitol on Valentine's Day. After relaying who we were and what we were doing, I began to ask him a few questions. At first, he was reluctant to admit any prejudice. However, as we talked, he began to accept the presence of the prejudice. But there's always that un underlying, uh, the undertow of prejudice uh, that I think is innate uh, because people tend to like people that looks like them, talks like them uh, more than people they would consider different or strangers, you know. You know, Ernie was right. The people in West Virginia liked those who were like them. Some anecdotal stuff. Some of the jobs I've worked at, it's, you know, like black jokes are okay. Not where I currently work. I work in the state and that wouldn't be acceptable. Adams went on to say how people would use the N-word regularly at work. It was the normality. It's 2018. I didn't expect this to be a normality, but I was extremely wrong. No matter what anyone says, just like Ernie, they know it deep down. It's there. It's there, and it affects how we view others. Which brings me to my next point. After nearly giving up hope, I land in an interview. After a long bureaucratic struggle of being shuffled from person to person at the Charleston County Clerk Office, I found myself sitting in a room praying with everything in me that I would at least be able to get answers to one part of my story. As I sat in the office with my friend alongside for moral support, I began to relax as I took in my surroundings. I noticed a variety of degrees framed along the wall. Sadly, I wasn't wearing my glasses, but given my journalist detective skills and the memorabilia spread throughout the room, I gather they were from West Virginia University. Yet, it was not how I would have expected an office to be. The office was not barren, nor a place that reeked of law and only law, but it breathed personality. There was an array of knickknacks spread throughout the room, West Virginia memorabilia on the walls and bookshelves, and picture frames of presumed family members. It was the office of Joanna Tappet, a circuit judge in Charleston, West Virginia. Right off the bat, Tappet blew us away for a number of reasons. First and foremost, she remembered our names. Not only did she remember our names, but she remembered who was who, addressing us as Caroline and Mackenzie as she answered our questions. 
I know it may seem like a trivial detail, but it eased the anxieties and allowed me to feel more comfortable asking a stranger such difficult questions. It made me truly believe in what I was searching for, and that my topic was more than just a high school project others denoted it to. My obsession aside, I had questions to ask, and the first was, do you believe that there is discrimination in the judicial system? What it is really is, I think, um, my understanding is, is really more not an explicit prejudice, you know, but really an implicit bias that people may or may have given, may or may not have given their own experiences. And these are sometimes things that you can't control. And it is an implicit bias. From the Civil War, from past judges, from a continuance of discriminatory ideas, it's there. However, I was not prepared to hear just how present it was. Let me, let me tell you a story. Okay. And I don't know if you want to put this, but this is honestly gone. I will tell you what happened in, in my courtroom. It's before I got here. Okay, This happened 30 years ago in Charleston. There were um, two horrific uh, assaults, brutal assaults and burglaries um, locally. And um, the, there were three victims in the two incidents. And they could not positively identify the individual, but they did identify the individual as a medium skinned black man. So, and again, this is 30 years ago. So there was a minor league baseball team in the area, and the attacks occurred in the area where those individuals played and lived. So they round up all the African-American members of that minor league baseball team. And, uh, you know, and they, they, they couldn't find anything. And apparently, they subsequently got a fingerprint match and uh, found, found one of the players, arrested him, tried him, he was convicted of uh, those brutal attacks, served 28 years in, uh, in the state prison and had tried repeatedly to be heard on the habeas corpus. For whatever reason, his habeas wasn't heard, so he went over to federal court. Federal court granted it, sent it back to me, and uh, we were going to, to try the case again. And as we continued to develop the case, I met this gentleman, um, an, an impressive fellow, you know, he'd been in jail 28 years, he went in jail, he's early 20s, he's coming in front of me, he's in his late 40s, almost 50. And somebody having done that, it, it was incredibly to me, he impressed me as being physically healthy, emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy, you'd have to be to withstand that. He wasn't bitter, he wasn't angry. Uh, I put him out on bond, because, you know, he knew people were watching it. And we went through the process, ultimately, and I'm not going to bore you with the details of it, um, the prosecutors appropriately agreed that they didn't believe they had enough evidence to try him and voluntarily dismissed the charges. And based on what we learned in that case, I did not believe that he did it. Just based on some of the evidence that was in question, and I'm not going to bore you with the specifics of it, um, but it was scientific evidence. This is pre-DNA, and they had done some DNA testing and things like that. And, uh, and so this fellow is now out. He's a motivational, inspirational speaker. He is married. It was a lot to take in. The story both amazed me and angered me. I couldn't grasp how our judicial system could let an innocent man go to jail for 28 years. In the case of Jimmy Gardner, there is no other excuse for his arrest than the premise of discrimination. And it angered me more to know this still happens today. So I had to ask the tough question. Do you find yourself discriminating against people on the stand? So I went to judicial. I haven't been doing this that long. I've been a judge for four years. And one thing they do, they ship you off to judicial college in Reno, Nevada. And probably one of the most interesting things we did um, was uh, a session on implicit bias. And 
you you take you basically before before you go into the course you you take a test and this is through the the Harvard study and you see images you hear sounds and you react immediately to those things and you know we all like to think that we're enlightened and we all like to think that we don't have these these prejudices these biases and these influences but you you just you just do this was a relief to hear it gave me a slimmer of hope into the system I was beginning to give up on. Albeit, this was simply the first step. Simply seeing images cannot erase years of biases. So I asked if and how she continued to battle these prejudices. I can tell you unequivocally um, that our state courts, because I went back from that, and I'm like, you've got to do this. When we have a judicial conference, I'm like, you need to bring this person in, and you need to educate all of us on what it is we do and how it is we do it. When we, as you've pointed out, Mackenzie, when when we set bond, when we do disposition, you know, am I sentencing you for the right reasons? You know, am I am I if I put you in jail, am I putting you in jail for the right reasons? You know? And I think awareness and, and training is is an important thing. But I, but I do think, and certainly in my lifetime, I mean, I've seen this make strides, but there are, there are horrible imperfections still. Asking questions starting the conversation, actively working to prevent biases, these are all ways to improve our judicial system. Finally, I wanted to know her opinion on what it was like to be a minority in the judicial system. One thing that tugged at my brain was, given the unfair treatment and sentencing, does that either promote more crime or give off a general sense of neglect for the law? You know, there's, I don't know that more crime, but there's gotta be an overall sense of, uh, of helplessness, you know? Uh, you know, because so much of it, the problem that you'll see is the disadvantaged um, will have, we'll have children who are in homes in which they've been abused or neglected, you know? And those children get into the system. And tragically, if, if they don't get good foster care or if a relative doesn't come up and take care of them, uh, or you know they don't get adopted, then you know we'll often see them in the juvenile system as juvenile offenders, and and then tragically, you don't you don't want to get them in the adult cases, but it ha you know it happens. You'll, and you'll hear people talk about the the school to jailhouse pipeline, and and that's that's kind of what they're referring to. And um, you know I don't I don't know that 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 causes that causes necessarily more crime, but. Yeah, I, I, I get, I get a, a feeling of helplessness, and you hope that the courts and appropriate stakeholders at various stages, whether it be probation officers, whether it be a counselor, whether it be a teacher, uh, whether it be just a caring adult, can intervene and get them righted. We cannot strictly blame the judicial system. We cannot blame the foster homes, and we cannot blame the children. Whether we want to accept it or not, problems are deeply rooted in a systematic cycle that inherently works against the African-American community. As Tabit said, children end up on the streets, not for fun, but because they feel they are forced to turn to them when their foster homes don't work out. And their foster homes don't work out because they're either neglected by their foster parents or they're angry that they're in the place to begin with. And this anger is rooted in the abandonment of their parents, which can be due to a number of reasons. One could be drugs, which in many cases are airlifted into impoverished areas and target African-American communities, leaving residents addicted and drained of their money. Another could be imprisonment. 
their parents being imprisoned for the same reasons they might be in the future. And through all of this, they are simply shown a system set up to fail them, a system that does not take their futures into account, their intentions, their economic status. And I believe this neglect in general may lead to a life in which they are thrown into the cycle that their parents were a part of, acting as a pipeline to prison. However, as I said, it's they and it's them, a grouping I'm not included within, which in turn makes it an us versus them scenario. And truthfully, I don't feel that this is right. This cycle of us versus them ideal has caused oppression for years upon years. For some reason, that is beyond me. People are scared of the minorities rising up. This fear then causes a rigid oppression, forsaking any voice the minority group had left. In the words of an intoxicated man sitting roadside in Charleston, West Virginia, It's not fair, but that's America. I disagree. It's not fair, but that's not America. America sees the unfairness, and it fights to change it. It acknowledges its mistakes, and it strives for a better future. Just this week, after a 15-year-long battle, Centoya Brown was granted clemency. Justice can be served, even if it takes 15 years. However, it's not easy. It takes hard work, dedication, and passion to change something so drastically. Yeah, it, you know, our system is a good system, but it, it, it's imperfect. We need to continue to strive towards correcting the implicit biases and start a conversation to educate others on how to do so as well. It, it's, it's better. It's improving. I think the biggest thing we can do is have discussion and awareness, which, which we are. I recently had the honor of meeting professor and podcaster Chenjirai Kumanika. He, alongside John Buen, worked on the podcast titled Seeing White. While working on a piece of his, he attended a Ku Klux Klan meeting in South Carolina. Chen Jirai cut to the point and asked a member, clad in Klan robes, if they believed they were a white supremacist. The member stuttered for a while, unsure of what to say to this African-American man standing before them, before finally saying something along the lines of, well, yeah, but that's not really the point. However, it is the point. Acceptance is the main factor and problem in racism and discrimination. It is not something you can just brush over. It's something we must acknowledge and embrace, in the sense that we don't accept it staying, but we accept its presence was once there. I was recently asked the question, who is the you that is telling the story? And I had to think about it for a while. I believe the me that is telling the story is the me that does not exclude myself from the problem. I was first introduced to race in the first grade. Sitting down on a circular carpet, I watched the Martin Luther King Jr. movie, along with my fellow classmates. We had been blind to the discrimination the world had to offer. A scene came on where he was a little boy waiting outside to play with his friend, as he did every other day. After waiting for some time, the little boy, who was white, showed up only to inform King that he could no longer play with him anymore, all because of his race. After the movie, I turned to my African-American friend and told her I would play with her anyway. We are not born racist. We are taught to see race as an issue. After that day, no matter how hard I tried, the way in which I viewed the world changed. There was hate in the world and it was accepted as normal. And as much as I would like to, I cannot exclude myself from this. I am a part of the cycle of discriminatory biases that have been taught through generations. I have, indirectly or not, been taught racism. 
We saw West Virginia, from what the media had fed us, as a place where racism was accepted. We were briefed on how different it would be, on how the people would be, and on how we should act. However, when we got there, we saw the differences were not as extreme as we initially believed. They just flung their flags openly. Not to the same extreme. We are close to the same. People tend to assume racism is run-of-the-mill, openly using the N-word, spitting on people of color, and supporting segregation. But, for the most part, it's not. Well, maybe in places like West Virginia it is, but nationwide, it is more in microaggressions. It's in small actions we may not realize we're doing. It's clutching your purse when a person of color walks into the elevator. It's assuming you're not racist because you are friends with people of color. It's mistaking people of color for employees in public. It's all the little comments and actions that stem from our views on different races and communities. We normalize an oppression of people of color, degrading them to a level below us, assuming they are not of the same value. In that case, we are no better than those flying their Confederate flags. In the end, the only true way to fight racism is to accept it plays a role in our lives, to accept its presence, but to not invite it in to stay.